it is a privilege for me to be sharing with you guys this morning, and uh, it is a weighty privilege this morning. I have felt uh, both encouraged and very heavy about this message over the last several weeks as I've been pouring over the scripture and praying over this and preparing. Um, and, and I feel like last week, Jeff ended up giving me a great setup because over the last several weeks, we have been in this series that I hope you have found as encouraging and helpful as I have, as we've been walking through praying scripture. We want to give you practical tools of how to pray. And, and, and one of the best ways to do that is by praying God's own words back to him, to internalize those, to speak those back to him. And, and last week, as, as Jeff talked about praying blessing over others, uh, those of you who were paying very close attention may have been struck by him mentioning that we are meant to, uh, to pray blessing for those who irritate and even persecute us. And some of us walked away from that thinking, I don't know about that part. And that part seems very difficult. And the reality is, if we're being honest, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. For some of us, we think, man, I really, I really want to do that. I want to be the kind of person that prays for those who persecute me, and I don't know how to do that. And for some of us, quite frankly, we're not sure we want to want that. Right? Particularly in this current cultural climate that we find ourselves in. And in a normal year, There are plenty of reasons for us to feel fearful or angry towards people or to to categorize people in that group of those people that I don't need to have anything to do with. But this year, goodness gracious, it is boiled to the surface in a way that I I don't recall ever seeing in my lifetime. The amount of division, the amount of fear, the amount of anger that we feel towards people. Anger and fear towards this particular group, or, or, or I hear, I'm also hear a lot of hurt and confusion over what people see as, as many professing Christians' response to the current cultural climate. And we have to take that very seriously, church. We have to take it seriously because Jesus had the audacity to consider our feelings towards others to be the measure of our feelings towards him. He doesn't allow us to compartmentalize how we think and feel and treat others and how we think and feel and treat him. We have to deal with direct statements of scripture like, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. Right? And, if, and if you're like me, your first response is, well, I don't really hate anybody. I mean, there's lots of people that I'd rather not have anything to do with, but I don't hate people, right? Well, the definition of hate, according to Mr. Webster, is to strongly dislike, tending toward either aversion, meaning I want nothing to do with them, or hostility. I would not be sad if something bad were to happen to them. And based on that definition, a lot more people fit into that category in my heart than I would care to admit. People for whom I feel I would just rather have nothing to do with them. And Jesus says, that's communicating something about what you think about me 
Because he says in Matthew 25, Lord, the, the, the people who are being judged, who are being condemned, are, are, are responding to him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a foreigner or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? And he said, answering them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So their response was, well, if I knew it was you that was the foreigner or the person in prison or the one who was hungry, I certainly would have done something. And Jesus' response was, it was me. You can't separate those things. That's not, and the the really frustrating and kind of annoying part is that's not my opinion. That's not my interpretation. That's That's what the red letters say. That's just Jesus' declaration of reality. And we have to wrestle with that. And listen, we are in this together, family. This, Please don't hear me in any of this standing up here and saying, I wish you had this nailed like I do. We are in this together. We are all prone in this. This is the struggle for each one of us because the truth is the gravity, like a gravitational pull, our disordered hearts are constantly pulling us toward judging others and dismissing others, placing people into neat little categories so that we no longer have to address them or serve them or think about them. It's just so easy to do it, we hardly even notice that we're doing it. It happens so quickly, we don't even hardly notice. You can even slip into it. This is how sneaky it is. You can even slip into it when you think you're standing against it. That's sneaky. Right? We can say things like, you know who I think are the worst? People who think other people are the worst. Wait a minute. I just literally did, did the thing right there. It's that sneaky. How does that happen? How is it that we do this thing without even realizing We're doing this thing because we have to realize what we're doing because we can't change unless we admit that there's a problem that needs to be changed. So how do we do this? How does that happen? It comes down ultimately to our habits. The things that I do every day, the things that I focus on day in and day out, the things that I choose to fill my mind with, the things that I focus on throughout the day, the things that the people that I choose to listen to are all shaping my desires, shaping my expectations, and priming me towards a particular response that happens before I even start thinking about it. We are habit-formed, and we don't realize how much those habits are shaping our hearts and producing a response One of those habits is labeling. Without realizing it, in labeling somebody, oh, that's that person. They're from that group. They're from that church. They're from that political party. They believe in that sort of thing. In labeling them, what we don't realize is that we are dehumanizing them in order to make it easier to dismiss or easier to justify our fear of them. Right? That's not a person. That's just a liberal. That's just a right winger. Right? I've categorized them, I've labeled them, and so now I don't have to deal with them as a real person. They're just an ideal that I disagree with. 
Sometimes it's even just as simple as they are selfish. That's simple. That label is enough for me to go, they're selfish. Therefore, I can dismiss them or even despise them. And church, this is, this is a deeply rooted problem because far too many in the American church not only don't see this as a problem, but fully embrace it and sometimes even claim Jesus' support of it. And why is that such a huge problem? Because the followers of Jesus are a people marked by a love for people that should be impossible for them to love. That's who we are. That's what defines us as followers of Jesus. A people who love others that are seemingly impossible for them to love. That's literally the identifying trait of real Christians. That they love like Jesus loved. Jesus said that is how that they will know that you are mine, by the ways that you love others. In her famous and completely amazing book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom gives like 70 examples of this. But one that stuck out to me the most is, is immediately following her and her sister Corey as they are in Ravensbrück concentration camp. If you're not familiar with the story, they are in a concentration camp. And after watching a concentration camp guard brutally beat a mentally handicapped girl, which just saying that out loud makes me angry. It says, Betsy, I whispered when the guard was far enough away, what can we do for these people? Afterwards, I mean, can we, can we make a home for them and care for them and love them? And Betsy replied, Corey, I pray every day that we would be allowed to do this. To show them that love is greater. Corey goes on to say, it wasn't until I was gathering twigs later that morning that I realized that I had been thinking of the girl and Betsy of our persecutors. We hear an example like that and think that is too extraordinary to be possible. Who prays for how they can love the concentration camp guard? And yet, that is the core of the gospel, brothers and sisters. We are followers of the man who said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we hear that and our mind immediately goes to, Yes, I will totally do that. Unless, of course, obviously, they're actually my enemy and they're legitimately persecuting me. Then, obviously, I would not do that for them. Jesus says it only counts if they are, in fact, your enemy, and they are literally persecuting you. And why? Because he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? So Jesus uses an intentionally provocative illustration. Even this person, who in your eyes is the personification of evil, and traitorous betrayal, even they can do that much. To Corey, he might say, even the concentration camp guards can do that much. But look to Betsy's example of how I love. 
For us, fill in the blank of whatever person or group or political party that would make you most uncomfortable, if not even offended, if Jesus were to use that as the example in that sentence. Jesus says, even that person can do that. I am calling you to something greater. But he doesn't leave it there because then what, what role do tax collectors play in the remainder of his ministry over the next three years? Those are the very people that he goes to. Those are the very people that he loves. Those are the very people that he spends the most time with. And Jesus is extraordinary. But for us, if our habits have formed our hearts and minds to respond in anger or in fear or in aversion to all of these people, for all of these things, for all of these groups, much of which, from a practical standpoint, is a very legitimate fear or concern or aversion. But if, if my heart is prone to do that, how am I supposed to change that? I can't just flip the switch and suddenly feel a sincere love for this person that I have had this strong aversion towards for so long. And how is there any hope to do that in our current culture? In the world that we live in right now, how can we possibly change, right? Where the outrage factory that is the 24-hour news cycle seeks to make money off of our fear. Where social media allows us to say awful things to and about people that we would never say to their faces. At least I hope not. Because we feel disconnected from them, so we feel a freedom to spew unbelievably discouraging and unkind things about entire groups of God's image bearers. How do we change in our current political climate which has become so polarized and so exaggerated that both sides literally believe this is not a decision between one set of policies created by men or another set of policies created by people, which is what it is, but literally believe that it is a choice between good and evil. That is a caricature. How can we possibly generate love for one another when we view them as pure evil without even realizing that that's what we're doing? We have to change our pre-conscious response, the response that our habits have formed in us that kicks in even before we start thinking about it. How can we do that, though? How do we change from a pre-conscious response of one that is self-defensive to one that is self-sacrificial, from one that is from labels and judgment to pursuing love. Now take heart, dear brothers and sisters. That is our Father's business. That is what He does. That is what He is accomplishing in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. It is not without effort, but we must be cautious and concerned that we are putting our effort into the right things and into the right places can only come through aligning our hearts with God's. And it starts with prayer. And one particular prayer, one habit of prayer that I have found unexpectedly and supernaturally, quite frankly, impactful is Jesus' prayer from Luke 23, 34. It's right there in your bulletin. Jesus said, Father, 
forgive them, for they know not what they do. The context of this prayer, if you don't know, is as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the spikes driven through his wrists minutes ago, looking down at the people who are spitting at him and mocking him as he hangs on the cross, and his response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. There is no condescension in this prayer, not even a hint of it. No hint of, oh, brother, father, help them because these guys are too dumb to figure it out. Am I right? Oh, it is only sincere, supernatural compassion that he feels towards those who are persecuting him. From the Jesus who told us, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Praying this prayer. Pray this prayer, brothers and sisters. Pray it for others. Pray it for yourself. And in praying it for others, as well as ourselves, we grow in our understanding that we are more alike than not. We have much more in common with those on the other side of the aisle or that person who has genuinely hurt us than we have that is not alike. In our, again, pre-conscious desire to try to protect ourselves, to justify ourselves, we want to find what is different about them, right? We want to figure out as quickly as possible, how are they not like us? Because then I can breathe easy thinking, well, I am on the correct side. I am right. And this is how they are wrong. Because in that moment, my comfort is found in in how I am better than them rather than the fact that I belong to Christ and I and they end up robbed of the real power of the gospel. I say pre-conscious, I keep using this word, because most of the destructive work happens before our brain even engages. Right? Nobody stops and thinks and plans this out. Nobody stops and thinks, hmm, how can I protect myself? from having to walk in actual obedience to Jesus and to actively put all of my trust in my own sense of rightness. Nobody does that. Which is why when we read scripture, it's easy for us to go, well, I'm not doing that, obviously. Because my heart has already sent me on that trajectory before my brain even engages. It's so subconscious, I don't even realize that I'm doing it. Father, forgive us. We know not what we do. This is precisely why heart change and not behavior change must be our primary goal. Our tendency is to take the root of the Pharisees, right? Because that's the easy, more tangible route, right? Just obey the command. Rather than aiming at becoming the kind of person for whom obeying that command is the natural response, changing our pre-conscious response to that thing. So rather than saying, well, it says I'm supposed to love my enemies, so I guess I got a white knuckle feeling some kind of love for this jerk. How well is that going to work out? Putting my effort into just trying to love them 
is never going to work because all I'm going to do is the more I think about them, the more I'm going to see all the things that irritate me about them. But in putting my effort in trying to become the kind of person for whom that is the natural response, by taking deliberate action towards allowing Jesus to transform our hearts, then I become the kind of person whose first response is to look at how we are the same rather than how we are different. Right? Both of us made in the image of our creator and deeply loved by him. Both of us prone to handle legitimate pain and fear in horribly destructive and selfish ways if Jesus does not intervene and help us out. Both of us only ever saved by grace, given as a gift from the Father, not by our own works or our own effort or our own rightness. And in finding those similarities, rather than seeing how that person is the worst, we are able to see the ways that the image of the triune God in whom they are made is reflected in them and in those things that they are passionate about, even if their passion is coming out in broken and unhealthy ways. I can choose to identify that person by saying, look, I understand you want justice. I seek justice too. Do you know why? Because we are made in the image. You are echoing the desire for justice of our tremendously loving and yet perfectly just God that you were, whose image you were made in. And, and I understand, I also seek out justice sometimes on my own terms and in my own ways, and it always ends badly. That's why we so desperately both need Jesus to love and lead us towards his mercy. It's a very different response to what I see far too much on social media. We are to be people who identify with others so that we can point them to our Jesus. The same Jesus that we so desperately need. And speaking of Jesus, let's come back to his prayer and take a moment to reflect on what it is exactly that he is saying and modeling in this because I think it's pretty profound. When he says, Father, An appeal to the only true judge, right? Father, I can't judge their hearts. I don't don't fully understand that person's wounds or fears or disordered desires that are leading to their behavior. I can't judge that. Only he can. Father, who is also the one whose image they were made in and they bear. Father, the one who crafted them in joy and that they reflect. And the one who loves them dearly and extends his arms in an offer to adopt them as his daughters and his sons. That father, praying to that father, Jesus asks, forgive them. Bless them with your grace is essentially what he's saying. Give them what they don't deserve. Give them the unmerited favor. Bless them with grace. Forgive them. And take a moment to reflect on what Jesus is saying there. Not, ah, just forget this never happened. Just pretend this this never occurred. Jesus knows exactly what forgiveness requires. As he prays this, he is in the blood and mud and agony of accomplishing it. He knows what this forgiveness costs. He is 
asking, Father, apply my life to theirs. Father, take from me what they owe you. Father, let me pay their price. Church, can you comprehend that kind of love? I struggle to. That is an extraordinary and compelling love. Father, let me pay the price for the one who drove just finished driving spikes through my wrists. Father, let me pay the price for the one who spits on me and mocks me as I hang here for them. Father, let me pay the price for my dear friend who denied me no less than three times one day after promising he would never abandon me. Father, let me pay the price for the one who 2,000 years from now will look at this act with such boredom and disconnection that it will hardly seem worth lifting their eyes from their screen to behold. Father, let me pay the price for the one who will use this cross as a club against their enemies rather than as the source of costly love and compassion to serve them. That, I can't wrap my head around that kind of love. It's just extraordinary. He says it's because they know not what they do. They don't understand. They don't see how their idols have already failed them. They don't see how their disordered hearts are affecting themselves and all those around them. They don't see how much they misunderstand and misrepresent God in their actions. They don't know how loved they truly are. I say this with a great deal of grief and quite frankly shame because I've been there far too many times in my thoughts and in my words. But the truth is, it, it is a special kind of cruelty for a follower of Jesus to mock a blind person for being unable to see. As if I cured myself from my own spiritual blindness. When we stand in the light and the person inside of the cave in utter darkness is thrashing about in anger and despair and our response is, I can't support or help you because of, I don't like the way that you are responding to your hopelessness. That is, to say the very least, not what our Jesus modeled for us. In fact, our Jesus grieves and asks the Father to let him take their pain. To let him take their punishment. And church, I'm so very grateful that he does. Because you and I have been or maybe still are in that same cave. And desperately need him to say, allow me to go into the darkness so I can pull them out. We are far more alike than different. We suffer from the exact same deficiencies of those that we judge so harshly, even if it shows itself with different symptoms. We are far more alike than different. We don't see how our idols have already failed us. We don't see how our disordered hearts are affecting ourselves and those around us. We 
don't see how much we misunderstand and often misrepresent God in our actions. We don't see, church, how truly loved we are. Father, forgive us. We know not what we do. We do not love because we do not truly believe that we are loved. I would argue that if you dig deep enough, that is the source of nearly all of our sin. It's the source of the first sin of Eden, right? Are you sure you can trust him? How can you say he loves you when he's holding out on you? And they say, well, maybe maybe he isn't acting in our best interest. Maybe we should take matters into our own hands. And then what's the response? Their response immediately when God says, did you eat of the fruit? What does Adam say? She gave it to me. I may have done that, but at least I'm better than her because she's the one who gave it to me. And he turns to Eve and what's her response? Well, I may have eaten it, but he deceived me. So at least I'm better than him because he's the one who tricked me into it. I disbelieve God's love for me and that results in every idolatry, every sin, every act of rebellion. I believe he cannot love me, not me, not with the life that I have lived. He can't love me or his love cannot be enough for me or he isn't loving me the way I think that I should be loved. Or I misunderstand the source of that love. Right? I have earned this love, or I must earn this love somehow. Or the source of that love just being, I just need to be better than that person. Right? So we do the spiritual version of the old hiking joke. Right? I don't have to be faster than the bear, I just have to be faster than the slowest runner. Right? I don't have to be the best or the most holy, I just have to be more holy than that guy. And as long as I've got someone I can point to, I can go, Jesus, well... But I'm better than them, right? So you got to love me. Father, forgive us. We know not what we do. We don't try to do this. We don't do this on purpose. It happens to us because we don't know how deeply and dearly we are loved, brothers and sisters. It all depends and is built on the love of God, not our love of him, but his love of us. We love because he first loved us. John goes on, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Right? So that's how made manifest. I mean, that's how it was made visible to us. God's love is made visible in that he sent his son to his enemies, to his rebellious enemies, so that he could pay the price to make us his own and adopt us as his sons and daughters. That is an incredible love. And in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's a great churchy theological word, right? For our sins, the, the substitution for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Right? If this is the extraordinary love that invites us into this family, we should be a family that lives in extraordinary love. Right? So we have come, and here's the, here's the thing that it all hangs on. In verse 16, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know 
and to believe the love that God has for us. That's what it's all based on. The love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. The day of judgment when all of this mess is going to be sorted out. Trust me, God has it handled. And it will all be sorted out. We do not have to fear because he is in us, so we are also in this world. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. And what have we just talked about? What is he? Love. He is love, so we are love in this world, just as he is. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. I'm telling you, this is a really great chapter. You need to go back and reread the whole thing. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. When I am so filled with the love of God, I don't fear those people anymore. I don't fear that circumstance anymore. I am held securely in the hands of the most powerful and loving being in the universe. What do I have to fear? Dear hearts, there is nothing to fear. We have nothing to be anxious about. There is no need to point out how wrong that other person or group is in an effort to feel our own rightness. You, right now, are dearly, deeply known and loved. Believe that. Trust that. Allow that to fill your mind, to fill your heart. Just soak in that for a minute. You are dearly and deeply known and loved by the creator God of the universe, by our heavenly father. Your identity is as secure as it can get. Your life is held in the hands of the one who spoke the cosmos into existence. You are secure, church. One author put it, not enough people have realized the love of God and his tremendous purpose. Not enough have so experienced his love that they are prepared to love other people at considerable personal cost. Love is the very core of who we are or can become in Christ, not just something that we do. What God does in us, loving us, though we were his enemies, is what, God's be- what God begins to do through us, church. I agree with the author who said, I don't believe it was difficult for Jesus to pray for his persecutors. Not because he was God or had access to something that is inaccessible to us. Simply because he was so united to the Father, so aware of how deeply loved he was by the Father, that that was simply the outpouring of his actual feelings. He actually loved those people. He actually wanted his father's best for those people. I think it would have been more difficult for him to spew curses and vile anger at them because he loved them too much. Even at their worst. They're very, very worst. But Robbie, you said it yourself. You called it a supernatural compassion. How can I do that? I'm just not capable of that. I don't see how I'm ever going to love that person. I understand. Yet not I. 
but through Christ in me. Church, on our own, you are absolutely correct. On our own, apart from Jesus, we can literally do none of the things that he has asked us to do. But we are not on our own, are we, church? That's the, that's the whole basis of our faith. We are not alone, and we are not our own. If we understand those two things, it changes everything, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. As recipients of the forgiveness that Jesus asks for us in this very prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We are empowered to be conduits of that same love and that same forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Church, pray this often. Pray this every time you feel criticism surfacing in your heart and in your mind. When those words come out of your mouth and you think, oh, that was actually kind of harsh or unkind, or judgmental. Pray this for that person. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This prayer puts them in proper context, right? I'm reminded that they, just like I, just like I am, they are loved by their Father and fall victim to the same gravitational pull towards selfishness that I do. That they, just like I do, grossly underestimate the effects of my sin and grossly underestimate how deeply and dearly loved I am by the God of the universe. And it puts my heart in the right context as in praying it, I'm immediately taken right to the cross, right? Because that's where he prays it. So my mind is instantly taken right to the cross, right to the gospel, where the cost of my sin and there is, is seen in brutal reality. But more importantly, I am reminded of the impossibly loving Savior who endured that, for my sin and for theirs. In coming back time and time again to the same simple prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We calibrate our hearts to think how he thinks and love how he loves. Church, pray this prayer until your heart truly breaks for them. Pray this prayer until your own sense of rightness, also known as self-righteousness, is utterly destroyed. Church, pray this prayer until your enemy becomes your sister or your brother. Pray this prayer until you love them like Jesus loves you. Pray it soaking in the limitless expanse of your Father's love for you. And I promise, one day, you will find that as you pray it, you truly mean it. Father, forgive us. We know not what we do. We underestimate how how self-deceived we can become. But worse than that, we underestimate how much you love us, how much you truly care, how much you can empathize with those who persecute us, with, with evil perpetrated against us, 
God, you understand, you have experienced that, and so you are with us in that and love us through that. Father, please stir in us. Overwhelm us with a sense of your love for us. God, allow that to fill us to overflowing so that when we look at our circumstances, we see all is well because I am loved. When we interact with those who we find difficult, or who hurt us, we can truly feel broken-hearted love and compassion for them that they don't understand the love of our Father. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Remind us of the firm foundation of your love for us and all of your creation.